for miles around, and they ascended to Jerusalem. And as they ascended to Jerusalem, they would sing psalms, and they would sing and pray together as they walked, and they ultimately then would walk up to the steps of the temple that is also mentioned in both the prophecy that there is a temple that's involved in this. And so all of this transpires in Luke 1 in Jerusalem. So in the days of Herod, after 400 years of silence, there's a governor that comes who's a rook, who is a crooked Roman king who hates the people but will tolerate them for money. It takes place in the city of Jerusalem. And in the city of Jerusalem, there is this temple. And if you were to be watching this as a film, it would almost be the countryside to the city and then moving up until you see on the top of the hill in Jerusalem the temple. Now ultimately the temple was destroyed we know after Solomon built it. But Herod built a new temple bigger than the one that Solomon had built. And he did that in order that the crisis of Malachi which said that Jesus would come to his temple could be fulfilled. Herod in his sinful nature didn't even know that he was building a temple to fulfill prophecy. He was building it because he was an egomaniac. The second temple is called the Herodian Temple. And what is amazing to see here is how Herod built this thing so he could prepare to bring Jesus in the world, even though he was trying to murder Jesus when he was a little boy. Herod, everything that he built was huge. He could not do anything on a small scale. And so the temple that he built... He spared no expense in. And he was such an, an egomaniac that every stone that was cut that was going to be used to put in the temple, he had inscribers inscribe his name on them. Every stone, said Herod. The stones that he used were 36 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet, and each one of them weighed the same amount as a Boeing 747. And on every one of them was Herod's logo. It would almost be like going to the mall and all you see is the Nike swoosh. So wherever you walk, Herod was proclaiming himself. The whole city is dedicated to Herod, including the temple. So on the top of the hill you have a city. On the top of the highest hill you have a temple. There's the temple courts. The square footage is twice the size of Solomon's. Herod blew out more rock than anyone in history. Everything he did had to be bigger and better. And one of the reasons that he did this is because on this particular hill where the temple was, there was only two things that existed, his palace and the temple. In other words, what Herod was saying to everybody is this is an exclusive neighborhood. The only ones that can live here are me and God. Me and God. And on God's house, my name is written on every stone. In other words, he's saying, you can worship how you want, but I will rule politically and I will rule financially. People can come here and they want, but they will buy my goods and they will fill my pockets. And the house of the Lord will be there for you, but my name is on it. Because I am Herod and I'm the king of the Jews. That gives you a little idea of why Jesus, when he came back years later, was so angry that he overthrew all of the temple courts and all of the tables and all of the people that were raising money because he said, this is not Herod's temple. This is my temple and it will be called a house of prayer. You begin to see some of how that worked. 
There were lots of reasons why people wanted to come to the temple to worship. Number one, because the temple at that time was in the highest place between heaven and earth. It was the place they could get closest to God. It was a place where God's presence dwelled in the Holy of Holies. People would come there to meet with God, and so they would go and pray and they would sing. It was the place where they could go because sin was atoned for for them there. They would bring sacrifice and blood would be shed, and particularly on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, or simply, as the Jews would call it, the day where they could come into the temple. It was a place where if you pictured the scene of having this area being so rural where most people come from towns of 50 or 75 people walking into this city of 100,000 people and as they come, the children of Israel begin to sing songs and join with one another and you can begin to see the crowds as they're joining in songs and, and psalms as they're walking together, ascending to Jerusalem and then ascending to the temple. What a wonderful feeling that must have been for people from small towns to join with thousands and coming into the place of the Lord to sing and worship. What a sight that must have been. Many of the people of that time were illiterate and very poor. Most of them lived in homes that would be barely 500 square feet. Most of the synagogues that they attended in their towns would perhaps have 20 people that would show up when it was time. And so to go into a place where there would be thousands would be beyond belief for many of them. They would go into their ceremonial baths that had been excavated for them and cleansed themselves before they would go to the temple. And they would put on special robes, which we later see in Revelation 20 as we will have special robes as we prepare ourselves to be entered into the presence of the bridegroom. And they sang as they ascended. And we look at the history of this, the history of Herod, the history of Jerusalem, and the history of temple. We look at this and we say, why did God do it? Why did God do it? And we're introduced to a very special couple at this particular time. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, as you begin to read in verses 5 through 7, it speaks of a man, a priest by the name of Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. And then in verse 7, out of nowhere there is added this event. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Luke, as he begins to do his research, is investigating the lordship of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, begins to write about this couple that shows up out of nowhere. And from our perspective, we might think that they were really something very special. But let me tell you something. They were really nobodies from nowhere. We meet Zechariah. And we see that he's a priest. And automatically we think, well, because he's a priest, he must be something special. Let me tell you something. He was not anything special. We know that Elizabeth also came from a priestly, priestly background. She came from the line of Aaron. Her name means God, God's oath. Zechariah's name means the Lord remembers. And Zechariah would be equivalent to us today of a pastor who pastored a little country church where maybe ten people would show up on a Sunday. Wouldn't necessarily be the one that would be the guest speaker at big events. He's not a big deal priest. But this is what we know about this couple from Scripture. Number one, we know they're old. When God tells you you're old, you're old. 
And so we begin to wonder, well, I wonder how old. Well, we don't know how old is old in this particular time, but what we do know is traditionally a Levite priest had to retire at the age of 50. 50 was a really old age back then. I'm glad they don't require that of us today. We know that he was older than that because he wasn't a Levite priest. And so he was not required to retire at that age. But let's say that he's 60 or 70 or somewhere between that. He's old. And she is old too. And the second thing we know about them is that they're barren or she's barren and cannot have any children. We do know that according to that day and age, that was emotionally a devastating event to have happen. Financially, this is dangerous also not to have kids because they didn't have Social Security then. And the ones who took care of you when you got old and couldn't get around anymore were your children. If you had no children, you were in financial danger of losing everything that you had. Number three, we know that they were poor. He was a priest working not at a temple in Jerusalem. He was a priest that was working in the middle of nowhere. He had a little flock, probably had to work a full-time job. So if you think about it, we see interjected into the story of the investigation of Jesus, a couple we'd never heard from before, 400 years of silence, and then out of the middle of nowhere, a little pastor and his old wife who have no children step in, and suddenly the Lord says, they're just the ones I want to use. And they made the Bible. And you know why? Because they loved God. And if you look at their lives, let me share some things that they didn't do during their circumstances. Number one, Zechariah didn't divorce Elizabeth. He could have. Being unable to bear children, he could have put her aside and found somebody, somebody else. But he didn't do that. He lived with a wife that was infertile on the assumption that God knew what he was up to. And he did not divorce her. He stayed married to her and they loved one another their whole lives. The second thing that Zechariah didn't do was he didn't commit adultery. As we've seen in other places in the Bible, when God's promises were delayed, people took things into their own hands and figured, hey, I'm going to help God out in this way. And we all know the story of Sarah and Abraham. That is the reason today that we have to take off our shoes when we go through the airports. Because of a new nation that was born as a result of disobedience. It's a fact. I'm not bitter. They also didn't get bitter at God. That God didn't treat them the way they thought they deserved to be treated. There are some people that will say to God, if you're not going to give me a baby, then I'm going to hate you. I'm going to despise you. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to serve you. I'm not going to be one of your devoted people anymore because you don't love me and you don't care about me because if you did, all you would ever say to my prayers is yes, 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 and then you would take care of them instantly. And they didn't do any of that. Here's what they did. They worshipped God. They accepted God's providence in their life and knew that God was the one that opened and closed wombs. They believed the Bible. They continued to worship. They continued to pray. And they continued to serve. And they continued to serve in ministry. And they continued to pray and ask God to answer that prayer. They never stopped. Then we get to verses 8 through 10. Zechariah's big day. If he wrote a journal, I'm sure that this was probably one of the highlights of the pages. Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God. 
He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Now we read that, and without a little historical background, we don't know all that went into that. But there were 18,000 priests that were serving in that day. And so when I say that being a priest was not a big deal, it wasn't. It was a rather common ministry among people. And he was just a little priest in the woods down the road. There were so many priests, as a matter of fact, that they subdivided them into 24 divisions. And each of the 24 divisions had 750 men in each division. And each time they had the opportunity, which was twice a year, a division would come for one week to Jerusalem. And out of the 750 men that were in that division, they would then begin to throw dice or cast lots to see who was going to get the big job. You had a 1 in 750 chance twice a year to get the big job. The big job was to go in when people were kneeling outside, throw incense on a fire, smell the incense, recognize what it was, and then walk out and pray a prayer blessing on the people. And that was it. That was your Super Bowl. It was such a big deal that you only got to do this once in life. Once you won the dice rolling contest and got to do that, you never got to do it again. The people in the meantime said that they were outside worshiping. What that meant is they had assumed a position on granite cement where they were on their knees holding their hands out in front of them. So the priest, while he goes in, they're all kneeling down on their knees on the hard cement, hoping that they have a priest that can throw incense fast so that they don't get too uncomfortable while while they are kneeling out there. As the priest came in, the day arrives, Zechariah gets picked. For all of his life, he had come twice a year to Jerusalem and rolled the dice. Loser, 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 loser. Today, he's a winner. Unexpected to him. In fact, there were so many priests that some guys never got picked for their whole life. But one day, on this day, an old man named Zechariah, a little priest from a little town in the middle of nowhere, the dice rolls to him, and it's his big day. It's his turn. Now, he couldn't go all the way to the Holy of Holies because that was just for the great high priest. But he would get closer to the Holy of Holies than any other regular priest except those that were chosen. He got right to the curtain, the very veil that we later on know was torn from the top to the bottom when Jesus Christ was crucified that opened it up to all of us. He got to the veil. He looked at it. He knew that right on the other side of that curtain was the abiding presence of God. And there on the fire, he took the incense and cast them into the fire so that they could begin to smoke and the smoke would represent the prayers of God's people. And here's Zachariah's big moment. He comes in. One-shot deal, drops his incense, closes his eyes. And I believe that in his prayer, he prayed for two things. God, please deliver our nation, because he was there on behalf of the nation. Please deliver our nation, because it was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the prayer of Malachi. Send us our Savior. Get us out from Herod. And number two, God, while I'm here... While I'm this close 
to your Shekinah glory, would you give Elizabeth and me a baby? If you did it for Abraham and Sarah, you can do it for us. Would you do that? And as he opens his eyes, he's not alone. And we begin to look at verses 11 through 13 of what happened. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Well, he's normal. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. He thought that he had reached the Super Bowl of all days, and he opens his eyes to figure out that he didn't just get to the Super Bowl. He's about to win the Super Bowl. I read things like that, and it gets me excited about what God does in the lives of people. How at moments when you least expect it, He steps into the world and He steps into your life and He says, I've been listening to you all along. And you have remained faithful and you've done what's right and you didn't get angry and you didn't continue to question me as to why or if you did, it didn't keep you from being faithful to the Lord. And I just want you to know I heard every prayer. But what you didn't know is that I was working behind the scenes because the 400 years of silence are about to come to an end and I've been choosing you for it from the beginning of time. And in verses 14 through 17, he begins to describe what the angel said. And he said, He will be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts and the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready the people prepared for the Lord. Now, if you were to go back to Malachi chapter 4, that is exactly what it says in Malachi chapter 4 that Elijah would do. And John is going to come in the spirit of Elijah to do that, the fulfillment of prophecy. And so we see that the first thing the angel says is, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the personality of the kid that you're going to have. He's going to make you happy. Joy and delight. You're going to rejoice at his birth. For he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Parents, I don't know about you, but I can think of nothing better in the whole world. We all have dreams and plans for our kids and our grandkids. But to have the angel of the Lord say, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. What better thing can be said of your children or your grandchildren than to have God say that? And I find it really interesting because the same word that is used for Herod the Great is also the way the word that is described by this angel that John will be great. It's the same exact word. In other words, you've got a king out there who thinks he's great, but I'm going to show you what real greatness is in the eyes of God. And so don't let greatness be defined by the standards of the world and the people like Herod. If you love God and serve God and accept His providence in your life and walk with Him faithfully, being and doing whatever He's appointed you to do, you are great in the sight of God today because of your faithfulness and obedience. So Zechariah is a no one from nowhere doing in the eyes of the world nothing. And God says, I heard your prayers. Here comes your son, and he will be a joy and delight to you, and he will be great in the sight of God. May it be said of all of us that that would be 
what God says about it. So picture, if you can, Zechariah. He's in this room all alone, just on the other side of the curtain from the Holy of Holies. Throws the incense onto the fire. And then he stands there and he smells it as it represents the prayers of God's people. He wasn't planning for much more. And then God's grace stepped in. Now the interesting thing about all of this is the reaction that Zechariah has to the angel. The angel just comes and tells him, you have won the baby lottery. I've got this great news for you. All these things are going to take place. You would think at that point, Zechariah would have jumped and worshipped and just did nothing but praise God. Couldn't get out. Couldn't wait to get out and tell his wife. But this is what happens. Verse 18. He's just been scared to death by opening his eyes. An angel's in the room, tells him you're going to have a baby. And Zechariah asks the angel, how can you be sure? And then he begins to list all the natural reasons why this can't happen. I'm an old man. My wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I love that line. I I wish I could hear the sarcasm in Gabriel's voice. What are you talking about? It's almost like, are you sure you got the message right? I'm Gabriel. I was just on the other side of the curtain. Where did you think I came from? I just had a conversation with Him. I can only say to you what He said for me to say to you. What are you talking about? Are you sure? Are you sure? And Zechariah starts talking. And in this talking, in these two verses, he begins to explain his unbelief. How do you know? How do you know? Gabriel's going, just shut up. Just shut up and receive it. Don't ask questions. Don't question my authority or my honesty. Just receive it. And he keeps talking. And we laugh at the guy. But how many of us are just like that? God said something and we say, I don't know. I'm looking around. Did, did God speak and aim it for one of you guys? And just. And sometimes God wants you just to shut up and receive His blessing. Just receive it. Zechariah's proof that you can pray for something your whole life and when God says yes, you're like, Seriously? Really? This is it? I don't believe you. Don't believe it. And he says, how, how do I know this is true? I'm an old man. And the angel's like, come on. And he goes, not only am I an old man, my wife's an old woman. In fact, in the Greek it said she's not a spring chicken. That's, that's not true. That's not true. says you're going to have a baby. 
And the interesting thing is next week as we get into the angel Gabriel's second appearance when he talks to Mary, there's a difference between the belief of Zechariah who says, I don't believe it, and Mary who says, I do. Two great appearances by Gabriel. And as a result of Zechariah's unbelief, the angel says, if you're not going to shut up, I'm going to shut you up. And so you're going to have to be quiet for several months. Is there anything worse than a pastor who can't talk? And so he became mute, couldn't say a word. In the meantime, if you're picturing these people who are outside kneeling on the cement, waiting for this old priest to go in there, throw the incense, say a two-sentence prayer, walk back out, pray a prayer, blessing over him, and let him go home, they're out there going, what happened to the old man? We've, we've been out here quite a while, and our knees are hurting. And uh, can somebody just check on him? And after this great event, he walks out, and he's supposed to say something to people to let them go, and he can't talk. And I don't know if he's miming or whatever, but obviously one of the other priests that were there and the people begin to recognize he has seen a vision. Something divine has taken place in there. We don't know what it is because he can't tell it, but it, it must be something great. And so another priest has to step up beside him, give a concluding prayer, and tell the people you can get up and go home now. And Zechariah, standing there, unable to speak, but having this massive knowledge that's just been poured into him, and this grace and the love of God, and he can't say a word because he questioned it. When God just wanted him to receive it. And as they were wondering about the delay in the temple, God was doing something magnificent as He was about to end 400 years of silence to prepare for the way of Jesus to come. So how does this change us today? As you begin to look at Zechariah, and when his time of service ended, he went home. He went back to his little town. And it says that after the course of time, Elizabeth conceived. I would love to have seen how he tried to explain to her miming come here baby it's a God thing no really God told me <laughs> she conceived God opened the womb of an old woman And the Bible tells us that Elizabeth does nothing for five months. This would have been highly unusual for her. But for five months, I think that this old lady sat in a chair in her house and probably just rubbed her belly thinking about what God was doing and knitted baby blankets. And she's like, oh God... Thank you for this baby. And thank you for my mute husband who cannot talk back. All of my prayers have been answered. And don't you just love this picture of Elizabeth? God loves her. He's blessed her. He's answered her prayer. She's going to be a mom. And he's going to be a prophet. 
And He's going to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And He's going to be the avenue by which 400 years of prophecy is going to be fulfilled through her child. You see, for all this time, nobody looked on Elizabeth as if she was anything. In fact, if history is correct, they probably looked at her as if there was something wrong with her. And for five months, she locks herself in her house, and all she does is worship God and know that He loves me. He loves me. He kept His eye on me, and I know it's all true. He has taken away my reproach, is what the Bible says. He's taken away my reproach. And we see all of this is to prepare the coming of Jesus to deal with sin and shame. And Jesus dies in our place for our sins. He becomes our high priest. He becomes our sacrifice. He becomes our temple. He becomes the one we go to to have sins forgiven. We gather around Him to worship Him. All of the ministry of the temple is fulfilled in Jesus. And sinners like Zechariah, those who have unbelief and sin, can come to Jesus and be forgiven of that. And He also takes away the shame of those who have been sinned against, like Elizabeth. That woman knew what it was like to be talked about and sinned against. As the wife of a priest, even though it was a priest in the middle of nowhere, the word reproach would have been something she would have known about. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it means that Elizabeth was reviled. She was disgraced. It means that she was a perfect person without grace. That's what disgrace means. It means that she had been abused and that she had been shamed and that she had been shunned. She had suffered emotional abuse. She had suffered verbal abuse. And she probably had suffered spiritual abuse for 30 or 40 or maybe 50 years. The other religious and smug and ungracious women would consider her cursed of God. And so they would spread rumors about her. Or maybe she doesn't love God is what they said. Or maybe she's not good enough. There's something wrong with her that God has turned His back upon her. Because if she was righteous, God would have opened her womb. God hates those two so much, He doesn't want them to multiply. How important could they really be? And for five months, she sits by herself in her house, rubbing her belly, thanking God before she reveals any of this. And maybe, just maybe, she did that because she was wondering, is this really going to happen? And she needed the time to make sure that what was happening in her was real. But she wasn't perfect. And I'm certain that there were many times in her life she thought, is God cursing me? But for those of us who are like Zechariah, who've had times of unbelief, and those of us who may be like Elizabeth, who have felt the rage of unrighteous people, Jesus came for us. John the Baptist came to prepare the way. Unbelievable, the prophecies being fulfilled in him. As we prepare ourselves to investigate the coming of Jesus, I pray that you'll take all the history of this. Allow it to settle in your heart as you begin to realize how great of a God we have. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would please come. And as they do, do you know that God loves you? 
If there's one thing Christmas needs to tell you, it's that God loves you. God loves you. For those who have sinned, and that includes everybody in this room, Christmas means that a Savior has come. For those of you who have been sinned against, Christmas means that He makes all things right. He allows those of you who have been carrying unforgiveness and bitterness against those who have said things against you and about you. And He says, I've made notes of it all, and I want you to know that it's not what they say that matters, it's what I say that matters. Christmas is about not only a new birth of Jesus, but a new birth of hope for each of us. I'm going to ask you to stand with me.